Got a few more. They're coming in two by two now here in Genesis 6 of the flood. Here we go. All right. Genesis chapter number 6. I want to go ahead and start off tonight by looking at this. I want us to read verses 1 through 4. Uh, this booklet is, is emphasis on the book and less on the let. Um, We've got a lot of stuff here that we want to cover over these four verses. Uh, there's an immense amount of, of, uh, difficult, of difficulty in this passage, to be honest with you. And so I'm going to do my best to kind of take my time through it um, as, as well as we can just sort of meditate on this. And we're going to look here in just a moment and kind of see how we've got to approach not just this passage, but truly every passage with some humility. Uh, we are fools if we come to the Bible thinking that we know all that the Bible has to say. Uh, we are foolish in thinking that we can know all that God knows. We can know what God has revealed. He has revealed Himself to us according to His Word, and yet, though we have His Word, we cannot exhaust it, nor can we know all that there is to know. We can plunge and dive deeper and deeper and deeper into this living book and, in, and into its, its well of, of living water, but yet, we will never reach the bottom of this. So tonight I want us to look here at chapter 6, which is going to be preparing us for the coming judgment. Now this is very timely. The next few chapters in, in this passage, and really this chapter, are going to be very timely for the days that we're living in, alright? So I want you to go ahead and understand that it's going to be very much having a, an end times tone to it, as we've talked about. The beginning and the ending is very similar. The beginning is alluding or picturing and pointing to what the ending is going to look like. Jesus referred to the days of Noah this is exactly why we have the title as such, The Days of Noah. Uh, and so we're going to see its importance for Noah's day, what that looked like, how and why God judged the world in the way in which he did, but as well, how and why God is about to judge the world once more. Now, do not mistake and think that judgment is only in the future. Judgment is very much right now as well. Now, I, I firmly believe that what we are seeing today, not just in America, but as, as a worldwide phenomenon right now is the judgment of the Lord. Now, now that sounds scary. It sounds hellfire brimstone, but this is very much what the Bible shows us, right? These days are coming. How could there not be judgment when there is continued rebellion in the way in which it is? Not just here, but I'm talking worldwide, right? Uh, the, the strong delusion that we're being given over to where there's no more logic Yet there's nothing but, as what we're going to find in the days of Noah, where as much of, not just that they're wicked and sinful, but that even the thoughts of their imaginations are continuously evil. I very much feel that we are approaching those days. So, let's look here. Chapter 6, verses 1-4, through four, it says, And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is uh, flesh. Yet his days shall be in hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And then also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were men of old, men of renown. Now, there is an awful lot taking place here. We're going to see the sort of godless apostasy in the first few verses. And we're going to begin here. Let's look here at the context and the difficulties of this passage, all right? First of all, I wanted to just sort of step back, even just from the Genesis study, for just a moment. Let's think about some Bible study requirements here. Now, all of you as Christians would certainly say that you have to, or should, right? I shouldn't say have to, right? That sounds, that sounds obligatory, but we, out of obedience, we should read our Bibles. Wouldn't you say that? All right? Now, would you say as well that you should not only read your Bible, that you should study your Bible? Absolutely. Now, if you think about this, 
Let's break this down into something that might, might seem a little more physical in nature. If you have a cut on your arm and you need to put Neosporin on it, now, do you think it's going to do you a bit of good if you read the ingredients of the Neosporin? No, because I can't pronounce them big words anyways, right? It, we're, we're, we're doing pretty good if we can pronounce Neosporin. Now, now, you have to not merely read it, but to apply it. So, meaning this, you can read Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. And it came to pass, and men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, and that sons of the gods saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took the wives. Right? And what did you get out of that? Not a single thing. Now, we can read this like a phone book, but this is not a phone book. This is the very breath of God. This is the very divine revelation of God. This is not meant to merely be read, but this is meant to be studied. The idea of being studied is to be read, first of all, because in order to study something, you've got to read it, right? But it is to meditate upon. It is to, to memorize. And the reason why we should memorize is because we should be absolutely enthralled by Scripture because this is the book of God. This is the book of which God has given to us. This is not merely a part of our life. This is our foundation for life. This is built into the walls of our life. This is built onto the roof of our life. This is everything to us. You will only be in your Christian life what you are in your study of God's Word. You can never separate the Christian life from the Bible. Now, Bible study requirements. First and foremost, it requires a dependence and trust in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures. The reason being is because the Holy Scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit always works through the Holy Scriptures. Now, we often try to separate so much, and we go, yes, the Holy Spirit, He is the one, He is the third person of the triune God who indwells every believer that we are now the temple of the Holy Ghost of God. But as the Holy Ghost, what does He do? He does not try to give us some new revelation. Matter of fact, He never gives us some sort of new, if there's nothing new under the sun. What does He do? He takes us to what has already been said, what has already been declared, what has been inspired, what is inerrant, what is infallible, what is sufficient, what is um, given to us and preserved to us. He takes us to the Word of God. Now notice this, before you were saved, when you read the Bible, I can tell you this, it would not make sense to you. You know why? Because the Bible gives us the answer that the carnal or the fleshly cannot understand the spiritual things. This is a spiritual book. This is not just a physical book. This is not a book about morals. This is not a book about do's and don'ts like many would claim it to be. Nor is this a fairy tale book of in the beginning and once upon a times being the same thing. Rather, this is the authoritative Word of God, not just an authority, not just the final authority, but the sole authority for the Christian life and for all others, whether they believe and hold to this book or not, they will be judged by this book, by the very Word of God. So this is important. We have to depend upon the Spirit to teach us, to guide us, to illuminate the Scriptures to us. I would tell you this. If you're reading your Bible without praying and asking for the Spirit to illuminate the Scriptures to you, you're not reading your Bible rightly. Now, reading your Bible, if you want to study it, you need help, don't you? I can tell you this. I need help. It doesn't matter how many degrees you get in Bible or, or any of those things. It doesn't matter if you're fluent in Hebrew and Greek and can parse every verb, right? It does not matter. If you don't have the Spirit of God and you are not dependent upon Him, then it will mean nothing. Because what does the Spirit do? Not only does He illuminate the truth to us, but He applies that truth to our hearts so that we would obey the Lord, that we would obey and believe by faith. 
The second thing about Bible study requirements is that we hold to, and we, we must truly, if we want to understand what God is really saying to us, hold to a historical, grammatical, contextual, and literal interpretation. If God's Word is not God's Word in one part, then it's not God's Word in any part. Jesus holds to the very first words of the Bible. Paul held to the very first words of the Bible. The Old Testament holds the very... Everyone in the Bible held to this, and so have we throughout church history, and we must continue to do so. We cannot unhitch the Old Testament. We cannot take the first 11 chapters of Genesis, like many modern scholars, as they uh, like to call themselves, try to do today, and by saying, well, the first 11 chapters are just sort of mythology, much like uh, the Odyssey or the Iliad and things like that. that. That's a bunch of baloney is what that is. Right? This is, we're talking about the very divine Word of God. And if we start taking parts out that we don't like or that we don't agree with, then you have to shuck the whole thing. I, I, we cannot be willing to shuck one jot or one tittle. This is the Bible. This is the Word of God. We must hold to it. Now, as we look at this passage, it's going to be important for us to look at this passage in a historical context, meaning who is around, who is this being written by, who is it being written to, and all these things to help us understand it. But as well, a grammatical. We need to know what some of these words mean and why they mean what they mean and, and why that actually matters. We also need to understand the context. Context, context, context. Context does truly help you the most in Bible study outside of the, the Holy Spirit Himself. Context is absolutely critical and key. Now, context is not just the verse before and the verse after, but let's see, where, where is this verse at in what book, what chapter, what, what paragraph of said chapter, right? What's going on before and after? What's going on then in the broader? And so we're going to see a little bit about that tonight and why that is so important. But then thirdly, we need to approach this passage in particular and many others, and truly as we study the Bible itself, with a great deal of humility. If you come to the Bible with pride, it will quickly humble you. Because you will find out that you are not what you think you are. You will find out that you are not as smart or as talented or as good or as gifted or as wise as you think you are. You will find out that life is not what you think it is. You will find out that God is not who you think God is. You will find out a great deal of things. But you will find out this. If you come to the Bible and the study of it with humility, there you will find wisdom. There you will find life. There will you find real faith and dependence upon the Lord. So we have to understand this, that there are still yet a great deal of mysteries not revealed to us, and none of us are able to know all that there is to know. And the one who says that they know some sort of new revelation, or that they know all that there is to know about the Bible and come to them for all, their, all your answers, don't. We've got to be careful here. There are some things, right? Some points that we're going to see here, even in this passage, that you can have one view or this view on this passage, and we're going to deal with, both, with sort of both views on this passage, all right? So we're going to get into some nitty-gritty deep stuff, all right? So, so get your waiters on, all right? Now, now, now with this, we, we've got to understand here that you can have one view of this passage, and another, and still go to heaven, just the same, right? We're talking about what gets you to heaven, not your works anyways. It's trusting in Jesus Christ. So now with that, praise the Lord, because what this means tonight is that is after, after we study these four verses and you go, well, Pastor Joe says 
view two is, is better than view one, but I, I like view one better, and, and here's why. That's okay. You can be wrong. No, I'm just kidding. Because <laughs> I'm still going to go to the same heaven that you are. And one day, these things that are still mysterious to us that you and I can't fully say, like the gospel, I can stand and die on this, God's going to take care of. As a matter of fact, you might chalk that up to one of the questions you can ask Him later. And I don't believe we're going to be asking Him any questions we see. As a matter of fact, when I think that we see the Lord, I don't think that we're going to have to have any questions because we're known as we're known. We're going to, have, <laughs> we're going to be glorified. And those questions about, hey, uh, God, I've been meaning to ask you something. You know, we were studying down there and that Wednesday night. And uh, it was Christmas time. The lights were out. It was so nice. And Pastor Joe gave this view and this view of this passage based on uh, who are the giants and who are the Nephilim, who's all this stuff, right? I don't think it's going to matter, right? Now, as we get into this, I want us to understand this. Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us the secret things belong to the Lord. I can trust in that. You know why? It's in God's Word. It's very much so in the fact that Moses there writing here in Genesis and in there in Deuteronomy 29, 29, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, is there telling us that there are some things that simply belong to Him. Think about this. How many of you guys are perfectly okay understanding that there is a rapture going to take place of the church, but you don't know when it's going to happen? I'm good with that. I ain't got to know. As a matter of fact, God says I can't know. But it's going to happen. That's all I can trust in. I can trust in it because He's told me what I need to know and what I can know because there are some things He could come down here right now and probably tell us, and we would go, huh? Because there are some things that are far too unimaginable for our finite brains to take in, right? Our brains are much like sponges or, or computer chips, even more powerful than computers put together, but we think about this, it can only obtain and, and hold so much, right? You take a, you take a sponge, say you, got a, say you got a leak in your bathroom, right? Say your toilet o- overflows, right? And, and it's half an inch of water. You can, you can put down all the towels you got, but you still might have some water left, right? You can even take that towel, and it can, might even just, you squeeze it, and some stuff's going to come out. You and I will forget more in this life, right, than we could ever imagine, right? Now, as we get into this, what we know up to this point in Genesis, a few things. One, in the beginning, God. God is the creator, the sustainer of all life. He is the Lord of all. He made everything by the power of His Word. He then stooped down and with His very hand picked up the dust of which He had spoken into existence, formed and fashioned man, breathed the breath of life into him and made man a living soul. He then used that soul and gave him one rule, don't eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Adam said, okay. And then Adam got to work doing what he was meant to do for the Lord there in the Garden of Eden, a perfect place and a perfect condition. However, he had the potential to either obey God or to disobey God. Up to that point, he had obeyed God. He then puts Adam under a deep sleep, takes a rib from him, informs and fashions his wife, and calls her woman. Then woman is, is uh, tempted of the devil who has fallen. Uh, and then, in so doing, what she does is she sins. She then passes off this idea to her husband. Her husband says, instead of saying no, he says yes to this sin. He disobeys God willingly. They are both now naked before God, before one another. There is shame, there is sin into the world. And now sin has entered the world. Death has entered the world, but God gives grace and mercy instead of killing them, destroying them forever and starting all over. What he does is he then would clothe them in the coat of a skin of an innocent one, proclaiming 
the very gospel of which His Son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, that we're about to celebrate the incarnation, the physical arrival of His Son to this world to die as the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. What we're going to see then is that God continues to uh, give this promise and provision uh, that is going to be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is to get us back to the presence of God. It is to draw us back to not just a new Garden of Eden, but a new heavens, a new earth, a new heavenly Jerusalem wherein dwelleth righteousness, where there's no need of a temple or a tabernacle, because God Himself will tabernacle. It means the idea is to dwell with us. Y'all know here at Christmas time, we're going to talk about it at some point, I'm sure, that very name, Emmanuel, meaning God with us. It's beautiful to understand that that is the whole thrust of what God is doing here. Even in this passage of chapter 6, where judgment is about to come. Literally, I want you to understand this. Billions in chapter 6, 7, 8, right, when this flood comes, billions are going to be dead by the hand of God because of their absolute corruption and sinfulness and rebellion against Him. But God is doing this to move along to bring Christ to the world, to redeem a world, to redeem a people unto Himself. And with this, we also see that the population and sinfulness are growing rapidly. Chapter 4 showed us this. You say, well, chapter 5, things look pretty good. Well, chapter 4 and chapter 5 are very much parallel here. And we find that we've got one lineage of, of, of wickedness and unfaithfulness that's going through uh, the lineage of Cain. And then we've got the, the lineage of Seth, where there's several men who are mentioned in chapter 5 with Enoch, who walked with God, and God took him, for he was not, right? He just raptured him out of there. Methuselah, the longest to live. And then we come all the way down to Noah, as we're going to see, who is this promised one who is going to, to bring about this sort of peace on earth, if you will, to some degree. Now, now what's going to happen here? We're going to see that Enoch walked with God, Noah walked with God, but we've got this division between these two folks. And all the while, we've got to remember this, that even those by faith who were saved were not perfect, were not sinless. Are you saved tonight? Well, then you're not sinless either. It sounds nice. We'd all like to think so but they still sinned. Did they fall into some of the same egregious sins of, of, of the world? Yeah, read the rest of the book of Genesis. Read about David. Read about, later on down the line, read about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Read about the brothers of Joseph. We're going to see that the world, because sin is in it, is absolutely going to be overflooded with it. Now, in this, we're also going to see that the beginning, once more, is telling us the ending. The days of Noah point to what Jesus referred to as the end of the days of Noah. It's going to be like the days of Noah once more. Everything is not moving in a straight line. We tend to think of time being this way. In the beginning, and then we're just going this way, we've got... Um, We've got the chapters 1 through 11 in Genesis. Then Abraham comes. Then Isaac. Then Jacob. And the Egyptians are happening. Then we've got Moses. Then we've got all the way down, right? It's not that way. If you read the Bible, you can read it front ways, and it's going to say the same thing. And you can read it from Revelation to Genesis. It's going to say very much the same thing as well. 
Genesis 1, what do you've got? A new heavens and a new earth. It's perfect. It's complete. It's wonderful. It is good as God declares it to be. In Revelation 22 and 21, what do you have at the very end? A new heavens and a new earth. And it's perfect and good and great. In Genesis 3, we've got the fall and the curse is introduced. In chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation, it says, and there shall be no more curse. Curse is reversed. But then, as you go backwards in Revelation, what do you find? Rebellious people. Judgment. You find the days of Noah, if you will. But then you find the church. Then you find uh, the cross there at the center point of all of the world's history. All of the, the history of God's redemptive plan. Then you find Israel. And then you find where we're at now here in Genesis, right? And then you go backwards. You see, see the other thing? It, it's all together. The universe and our history is, from our perspective, much like this. But it's going this way, isn't it? Now, we've got to understand this to help us out a little bit. Now, what's happening here is sin is spreading and the ripple effects are are sort of this tidal wave. The shockwave of sin is spiraling and consuming all in its path at this point. As Scroggy writes, sin is as a spreading leprosy. An individual first fell a victim to it, then a family, and now the whole of society. By apostasy is meant the abandonment, in practice at least, of principle and beliefs once professed. We're going to see here throughout the book of Genesis, there's going to be countless people who you would think would stay in this righteous lineage, but would then deviate. Why? Because faith cannot be inherited. Faith cannot be inherited. What grandma had don't mean you got, right? What, what mom and dad had don't mean kids got, right? Think about this. You, you might be in church tonight here on a Wednesday night. You might be here four times a week. You might have been a part of the Christmas crew putting up decorations for all I know. I don't know. I, I, you, you serve the Lord, all those things. It's wonderful. It's great. But you've probably got family. Kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, things that hardly will darken a door, won't study the Word of God, probably and possibly aren't even saved. That's a frightening thing to think of, but we show here clearly, even in our own life, that faith cannot be inherited. So we've got to understand here that just because there's a righteous lineage of chapter 5 does not mean that it's a perfect lineage in the sense that all of these people are now sinless. No, all the more that they are saved by grace through faith, trusting in God's promise and His provision. Now with this passage, we've got to understand as we're coming to it here, as we're about to get here into some meat tonight, is we've got to see that there's some different viewpoints about some major things that we will address each one of them, all right? I don't believe in skirting around issues. I don't believe in taking the easy way around issues or trying to make the easy thing happen. We've got to get into the nitty-gritty. We've got to get into some stuff that makes us uncomfortable. And we've got to get into the, even the stuff that makes us go, you know, here's all the evidence for this and for this. You can make up your mind and it won't determine your eternity. But at the end of the day, there's some mystery. And this is why you must approach us humbly. But there's going to be different viewpoints about who are the sons of God and verses... Uh, 2 and 4. There's also going to be questions about what does it mean about the 120 years where in, chat, in verse 3 for that he also is flesh yet his days shall be in 120 years. Is it talking about 120 years old or is it talking about in 120 years of reprieve until the flood comes? 
right? Which one will it be? Who are the giants? What are the giants? How'd they get there? What are they like? And as well, what does it mean to be a man of renown? Much debate about that phrase as well. We'll get into that. Now with this, we will cover these viewpoints, but come to a biblical conclusion with humility as we see this passage, not only by itself, but within the scope of the broader context of the book, Testament, and God's eternal plan. Now here we've got to understand this. If you want to see something very up close and detailed and to know all that there is to know about it, what would you use? A microscope, right? If you want to know what's in your blood, are you going to use binoculars or a microscope? Microscope, right? <laughs> we had to think about it, didn't we? Microscope, right? We want to get deep into it, right? To see what's, what's crawling around in there, what's in my blood, right? But if you're wanting to see the stars in space, are you going to use a microscope or a telescope? Telescope, that's right. Now, why? One can do the immediate details, Right? the things unseen, if you will. The other, the telescope, can see a little bit far, farther out, a little bit broader. And that's what we're going to see here is going to be happening. Now, we're going to see this passage in its immediate microscopic um, meaning here in chapter 6, here in the book of Genesis, here in the Old Testament. But then we're also going to see this as well with a telescope to see what this means for the days of Noah in the end times. The days of Noah are coming. The end is coming. Judgment is coming. And it won't be by a flood. It will be by a fire. It will be by a refining fire. It, it, there, are, there is real judgment coming. We've got to understand that Christ is coming. And you will either be in the ark of Christ or you will be destroyed. Now this is, this is what the book of Genesis is showing. This is, not, this is not the Sunday school coloring book that we give to our children. This is not a little tugboat with a giraffe sticking a head out of a window, and there'll be a little bird off in the background somewhere, and one old bearded guy with a staff standing on top next to a, a lion. This is one family who simply said yes to God, entered into an ark prepared, and where God said, you come in, right? We'll get into that here in a, couple, here in a little while. Not tonight. <laughs> a little while means, you know, when we'll get to it. All the while, the rest of the world is going to be destroyed. We've got to teach our kids what this actually means. You can teach your kid, hey, look, this is so nice. All the animals came to ark two by two, and look at how happy Noah is on the ark with the animals, and they're having a great cruise like it's a Disney cruise. But they're escaping damnation. They're escaping while literally death is all around them. We need to teach us because this is the truth. And we need to teach us because the very same thing is about to happen again. Only this time it's not going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Only this time there's not a big boat that animals are going to get into and that you and I might be able to uh, you know, buy a ticket onto. Only this time when it comes, when tribulation, the great day of tribulation comes, much like the ark in Genesis the door will be shut. And if you're on the inside, there's going to be plenty of people who are on the outside. There will be friends, family, loved ones, neighbors, 
Much like there were billions who were drowned and killed for their sin in Genesis 6, there will be billions coming in the days ahead that will die in judgment. Judgment's very real. We can't just skip around that. And this is what Genesis 6 is showing us. You say, but I thought God was a God of love. He is. You know, he's waited nearly 2,000 years to punish sin in this fashion. You know that he's allowing Noah to preach all the while to build this ark. You know, all the while that ark, anyone could have come, anyone who would have come, could have come. God is gracious. The world should have ended in the garden with the first sin, and it didn't. God is merciful. Now what we're going to find is that in this passage, and going into to verses 5 through 8 as well, that's we're going to get into the next booklet. Whatever this sin is, what we're going to see is that clearly that this sin, there is a, an illicit union, a perverted union of some degree, sexual and violent in nature, and it is going to be the cause of judgment. Hamilton writes, whatever the correct interpretation of these four verses, right, whichever view you want to hold to, the union itself is illicit for God is provoked. And what is God doing here? God is doing a small picture of what He's going to do in the future. And that is to not keep things going linear, but to bring it back to a place of shalom. You know what the word shalom means? It's often used as a greeting for the Hebrew people. It is often simple in its meaning of, of peace. Peace is this idea, though, and shalom is much more simple than not having war or violence, but restoring something and making something that all is right. Everything from the life itself, the motivation itself, that everything is as it should be. Let me ask you, is everything as it should be in this world? No. Everything's not as it should be in our own life, let alone this world. So the great news about the new heavens and the new earth of which Christ is making for us that we get to enter into with Him is that it will be a true shalom, a real peace, a real as it should be without the curse. That's as it's meant to be. Now let's get into verse 1 here tonight. <laughs> Listen, y'all. And it came to pass. What came to pass? When men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them. Now as we talked about, this book, not just Genesis, but the Bible itself, is not a phone book. It is not a church directory. It is not a, an obituary service. This does not tell us everyone that lived and died. Does it tell us a lot of it? Yes but does not tell us all of it. As a matter of fact, as we talked about a lot over the past few weeks in Genesis 5, the pattern, except for Enoch, was this. Here is so-and-so. Their name is so-and-so. They lived so-and-so many years. They had a child. They named them so-and-so. They lived some more years and had some more children, and then they died. That's right. That's the pattern. Now, how many kids are they having? It doesn't tell us. They're having an awful lot. If you're living to be 969 years old like Methuselah, you're going to have some babies. There's going to be a lot of kids. Now think about this. They are marrying and giving in marriage. They are marrying one another. They are having and literally doing what God had said to do, which is be fruitful and multiply. 
They are populating the earth, and it does not take long to do so. You know what the population growth has been in the past 120 years? It has, from my understanding, nearly doubled. You know, we're almost at 8 billion people right now. In the 1800s, it was about 4 billion. Think about that. 100 years, 4 billion new people. Double. Now, if you think about this, we've got about 2,000 years. People are dying, certainly. There's a lot of people being born. This is a populated world. This isn't Noah and his family and then a couple other villages. This is a world that is populated. And you know what it's populated by? Sinners. And all of their debauchery and deviancy and sinfulness. That's what is full of. The world is not full as it's meant to be, full of shalom or full of righteousness, but rather it's full of wickedness. It's full of lawlessness, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. Phillips writes, Again, the Holy Spirit goes back to pick up on the thread of the wickedness that formed the black background on the tapestry of those times. We do not know how far back Genesis 6 goes. Some have thought it might retrace history as far back as Enoch the Sethite and Lamech the Cainite both of whom were the seventh from Adam. In any case, the story of growing lawlessness of Noah's day begins with a brief account of the great apostasy of the antediluvians. Antediluvian is the pre-flood humans, all right? The pre-flood world. Here he says, For centuries things had been coming slowly to an head, but now came the final expression of the perversion of man. James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 describe this sort of this downward spiral and downward slope of sin and that it always brings forth death. Sin always runs its course and it always ends in death. Sin never ends in beauty. Sin is the opposite of beauty. Sin, as a matter of fact, marred beauty. You want to talk about someone in something that was beautiful. It was Adam and Eve living with a perfect marriage in the perfect garden with a perfect God in perfect relationship with one another, with the creation, and with their creator. It does not get better than that. What did sin do? Immediately marred the relationship. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames a serpent. Now she's going, what did you say? Right? Now they're arguing. Now they're not getting along. They're certainly not in right relationship with their creator. They're certainly now not in right relationship with the creation because they have taken from it of which they were not supposed to. We see what sin does. It takes something that is pure and takes and just trashes it. Now the phrase is setting up that there is a shift in the mood of the writing and that some climactic events are about to unfold. This is continuing the story of God's redemptive plan in the midst of man's continued rebellion. As we've talked about time and time again, God is not going to be thwarted in His plan. Nothing is going to deviate Him. Nothing is going to take Him to the right or to the left. God is moving right on along. What's He moving right on along to? The cross. He's moving right along to the place where Christ the Son will fulfill the promise and provision of God and will crush the head of the serpent. Men and women up to this point have been marrying as they were supposed to. And then chapter 4, we find that there's now multiple people in the marriage and we're finding some of these issues arise. Now there's sexual perversion, sexual sins. And what we always find when there is idolatry and immorality, 
what we always find is that there are sexual sins. Now, even more specifically, you look historically, you trace every single major empire. The reason why they fell and the moment that they fell, you know when they were falling? You look at every single one of them, they fell at the peak point of sexual deviancy and perversion. It happened with the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And it's happening with us. America itself is not just a a country or a nation. It is itself, to some degree, an empire. And it is doing the same thing that every other empire has ever done. Why? Because every empire, no matter where it has been, is made up of the same sort of people. Sinful people. Sinful people and their sinful nature are perverted and vile. And their thoughts, imaginations, their actions, their feelings, their beliefs, their motivations. The men and women are procreating as God had intended. However, with sinful natures, the sexual perversion and improper motives for having children have now been brought in. And we're going to address this. I wanted to put here for just a moment, and this is not in your, in your booklet, this is, this is sort of extra here. I wanted to sort of propose this question, why are sexual sins so bad? You and I look and go, well, how come a sexual sin isn't, you know, how come that's viewed worse than, I don't know, pride or gossip? Sexual sins are, are rough, very rough. Think about this. Many marriages fall because of sexual sins. Many homes, many men and women are being destroyed right now because of sexual sins. Do you understand that statistically right now, as many women are addicted to pornography as there are men? You wouldn't think so, but you look this up. The studies are showing this. Children are being exposed to this at such a young age. The average 10-year-old has been exposed to pornography that 40 years ago you could not even dream of seeing. I can tell you why it's happening. It's happening because we're giving six-year-old cell phones and letting them get on social media without any sort of monitoring or care or concern. That's not loving, and it's not teaching them and training them. It is putting them to the wolves. And I can tell you this. The deeper you dive into sexual perversion, whether it's pornography, transgenderism, homosexuality, whatever it might be, I can tell you what happens. You follow the trends right now, and you can look at every study, every statistic, and it will show you that right now, today, those who identify in these groups, the suicide rates are out of the roof. The depression rates are beyond imagination. Why? Because sexual perversion is at the very core of sin itself. It is going contrary to what God has ordered, to what God has ordained. God established and still establishes what gender and sexuality is. He still decides what the role of man and woman is. He still decides what the role of mother, father, husband, wife, and child is. He still determines and clearly shows that the relationship in the home first must be husband with Christ, uh, a wife with Christ, then husband with wife before it can be uh, mother and father. And before 
before and even after children come. The relationship of the home is not centered around children. It is centered around a godly man and woman who love one another and have covenanted together with one another. A marriage built on kids will fail. And it's happening daily. It must be built upon Christ. Then the home after kids must be built upon that marriage because if that marriage is weakened, watch out. The rest will crumble. It is God who establishes the natural order of the home. And the reason why we are in the shape that we're in, and the reason why every other empire became in the shape that they're in, you know what they began doing? The same sexual perversions of which we're seeing today that are so popular, and as well, a destruction of the home. You want to destroy a society? Take a man away from his God. Take a man out of his home and from leading his home as God ordained. You're going to watch this happen. And you're going to watch it happen quickly. This is how God ordained it, and He did it for a reason. Not because He's some sort of mean patriarch with a long beard playing whack-a-mole with His people, or because He says that women are not as, uh, as wonderful as men. No, as a matter of fact, if we remember correctly, Eve was a gift of God's grace to Adam. She was designed for a purpose. They were knit together. Side by side. Yet he being the head of the home does not make him the greater creature. It does maybe in strength. It does in certainly the way in which he was the one that was supposed to do what he was supposed to do, and yet he failed in that. We addressed that in chapter 3. But now with this, these sexual sins, look at this. Sexual sins. Sexual sins now mar the image and the gift that God has given Sexual sin, step outside of God's boundaries. It is a slap in the face to God's boundaries. It is a slap in the face to what God has ordained and what God has spoken. It is a, the most defiant act that I can possibly think of. Because sexual sin is not just immorality. It is idolatry. It is blasphemous, as every other sin for that matter. Nevertheless, you'll find that sexual sin is making oneself your own God. It is seeking your own pleasure. It is seeking your own will. It is a rejection of order and rightness and doctrine and what God has ordained. That's, no, that's not just immorality. That's idolatry. Furthermore, we find that every pagan culture that there ever has been, including our own, has fallen under this trap of worshiping sexuality. What we're seeing today that is so popular that our children are being taught and that we're allowing them to be taught and we're even teaching it with the way that we allow them to dress and the things that we put in their hands and in their minds, what we're doing today is we are giving them pagan beliefs. We are teaching them to worship their bodies. We are teaching them to worship pleasure. We are teaching them to worship their own wills, their own wants, their own fleshly lusts. We wonder, well, how come they're not in church? How come there's depression and suicide and school shootings? How come there's all these things? 
right there. Every pagan group out there lifts up sexuality to the point that it is worshipped. You look at the Old Testament, and we're going to see this as we go through Genesis. Almost every single one of these gods and goddesses of these pagan groups, sexual in nature. Everyone from Baal on down to Asherah. The gods of Egypt, the Greek and the Roman gods and goddesses, it is full of these things. In this, we're going to see as well that there is, in these sexual sins, a deep root of trying to find one's own satisfaction and trying to find one's own salvation. And it never works. Genesis 1, and 28 both describe God's mandate to be fruitful and multiply, but sin itself skews the motivation and the means of procreating. Since Genesis 4, we have seen that mankind and its sin seeking is in its sin seeking to create life and build a kingdom for themselves. You can see that in chapter 4 with Lamech. And what we're going to find as we get into, into verse number 2, that there are going to be this illicit union that we'll get into details. We're going to leave you on the cliffhanger, all right? We're going to get into why these sexual perverted sins matter and to why this would be the cause of great judgment. I know tonight, while we didn't cover much Scripture, and I know it's a little heavy, I want us to see this, that chapter 1 is showing us that things are about to go down. And verses 2-4 through are going to show us exactly why. We've got to have our eyes open to understand that the same things that were taking place then, we're starting to watch them happen at a very rapid rate today. And we've got young people, we've got families that are broken over these things and have no idea that it's a problem. We've got a couple options. Y'all believe that the Lord's coming back? Y'all believe that judgment's coming? You believe that you're going to have to look at your maker, meet your God one day? I do, firmly. And I believe that everyone out there is going to have to do the same. Not only do I believe that time is short, but I believe this, that there are a great deal of people that need to know that there is an ark. That there are a great deal of people that need to know that there is an ark who is called Christ the Lord, who will save them from their perversion, who will save them from their wickedness and their sinfulness, and will right what is wrong in their life and promises to right all wrongs in this world one day by creating a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness and there shall be no more curse. What are we going to do about it? We've got two options. One, we preach the word. We live as salt and light as Christ commanded. Or two, we put our head in the sand we keep letting the world raise our children and our grandchildren and we watch them as we remain on the ark and they remain in the floods of water, of judgment. All the while, there are those who need to know who Christ is. We need to decide now before we even get into verse 2 that we are going to determine to preach Christ in this generation. These might not be the days of Noah that we're living in, but there are days, and we're living in them. We need to do something about it. Let's pray.
Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. We're grateful, Lord. And while this passage, Lord, to be honest, it is such a heavy, heavy passage, a difficult passage. Lord, I don't know how many hours I've put into studying, and there's still so much mystery, so much depth, so many things, Lord. Help us to see the depth of sin, but also, Lord, to see the height, the breadth, the depth of which your mercy and grace is extended to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to determine even tonight, God, that we would do not desire to allow this world to continue to go the way that it's going, let alone our families and our friends, our, our children, our grandchildren. And, and God, help us to preach Christ. Help us to live for Christ. Help us to walk with Christ. Help us to be Enoch's and, and Noah's in our day to walk with You, Lord. Uh, not that others might see who we are, but that they might see who You are, that they might repent and believe and be brought into the ark that is Christ. Lord, we love You and we thank You for this time. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank y'all for giving me the extra five minutes. We'll take five minutes off Sunday morning. Just kidding. Y'all have a blessed night. We will see you guys Sunday morning. Looking forward to it.